Welcome back to Who Turned Out the Lights. Joining us today is Liz Durham, who began CASA training 13 years ago. CASA is a, or CASA, I'm not sure how you'd pronounce that, is a court-appointed special advocate for children in foster care. In her work, she has provided crucial information that has ensured safe and loving placements for each child. Mrs. Durham, thank you for joining me this evening. Thank you for inviting me. So, no, how do you say that? Like, CASA, I know it's an abbreviation, but CASA, CASA... It's CASA, Court CASA. Appointed Special Advocate. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So, okay, so what exactly do you do as a CASA? Well, what a CASA does is after a child comes into the court system and they deem the child is in need of um, care and protection, and um, there's certain terminology. Um, if a child, um, you know, there's so many kids in the foster care system and there might, there might not be enough CASAs. In my area, the United States has deemed it one of the hot spots of, um, of children that are being removed from foster care. And there, this is, there's like, they're pinpointing certain areas in the country, but anyway, there's more uh, kids in foster care than there are causes. So if a kid is lucky enough, and I hate to use the word lucky, they get somebody that is another set of eyes on a child that makes sure that um, as a child goes through the court system, they have a special advocate that, um, is there to be a voice for the child in the court system. So when, um, so depending on the situation, you know, a child is removed from the home, it's generally a mom, a dad, or just a mom or just a dad, whatever the situation may be. Um, the parents have attorney that each parent has their own attorney and um, represented by this, they get the state of, a, a, you know, a court appointed attorney and the child, there is a child's attorney, but there's really nobody advocating for that child in the courtroom because of their age. So what I am is I am the voice for a child, essentially, in the court system. Okay, I see. So why did you get involved in this process? Um, well, you know, there's several reasons. One of the reasons I started thinking about it a little bit, but Um, I distinctly remember an article I read in my local newspaper, and it was talking about kids in one of the most affluent places that I live, which I live in Louisiana, and we are um, a very poor state. Um, I think it's, we have over 30% of the state lives in poverty statistically. Mm. And so one of the wealthiest, the wealthiest area, I read an article about kids that were sofa surfing, which is... I was perplexed by it as a mom of four who stayed home with her children. There were um, children in the wealthiest part of the state that didn't have a home or place. And I started reading all the reasons and um, what led them to that place. But I just thought this was horrible. So that just tugged at my heart. And then um, I kept on passing this building and, you know, I, I passed this one building. I'd go to the grocery store anytime I'd go from my house and it was a CASA building. And then I started seeing the um, advertisements, you know, children that need CASAs. And so I started exploring it a little bit more. And as somebody who was just um, a stay-at-home mom and really cared for her children as well as her friends, you know, her, her children's friends and seeing how the social norms were changing, I just decided that I wanted to throw my hat, you know, in the ring and I was really drawn to it um, and have been doing it now for about 13 years. Well, it's a very um, remarkable experience. You know, it's great to see 
people going out and doing that. So uh, can you share some of your experiences, like most notable? Um, well, as far as my experiences is like, I can't breach too much confidentiality, mm -hmm. but, um, I've had several cases over the years. I've probably, uh, most classes have one case per, you know, one case at a time. I've had upwards of three, sometimes four, but that's when I was like really in it and I had a lot more time. Um, you know, I've had some kids that I've carried through for 13 years now, and those are mm -hmm. really sad situations. And then I've had some cases where, um, the child was reunified with the parents. Um, I've been in cases, I've been in homes with foster parents that have had uh, medically fragile children only, um, that they were just drawn to that community and that need. Mm -hmm. um, I've just seen a gambit of everything. You know, I've seen children, but most of the time, unfortunately, the cases that I get, the children don't go back home. Hmm. Um, I get, I, I generally get pretty tough cases. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, each case has been, you know, different. I've had, uh, children go back with, uh, men who were even, the mom had remarried and this wasn't even the biological father and kids that went back with the non-biological father, but that father was the most appropriate placement because, um, the mom was addicted to drugs and she was potentially going to sex traffic her child. Mm. Um, yeah, I've had a little bit of everything. I've had medically fragile children. I've even had Indian children. I've had children that I had to go to the uh, reservations. I've had to talk to the reservation and the councils. And I'm one of the few causes in this state that's ever had to do that. Wow. Okay. And that's a, for the record, that's a whole different set of rules. You have to abide by, um, the the tribal the tribal law whatever that tribe or whatever uh rules you know you're it's a whole you're not part of the united states government uh that's a whole nother governing body so when a child comes into care and they're they're taken out of the home and then you find out they have um they're part of a tribe or the parents are um it becomes a whole different set of rules you mm. know so yeah, I've seen so, a little bit of everything. Yeah, I imagine. So what creates generally the situation that necessitates a foster care system? Um, well, for my cases, what I've, it's been drug addiction, mm. um, severe drug addiction. Uh, and, um, you know, we're talking heroin, um, meth, you know, crack. Um, like I said, they had identified one of the hotspots. Um, so it's been generally, I, I, I know that there are cases of abuse and I've heard of those, but I've, I think all my cases have been attributed to severe, um, drug addiction and children that are being born drug addicted too. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's one reason it's drug addiction. It can be abused. It can be sexual abuse. Um, these are all things that have, that are happening and, and, uh, and COVID and mental disease and COVID has exponentially made this problem, uh, substantially worse. Um, you have mental disease now, um, you know, parents that have lost jobs, um, you have children that have been, um, you know, that have had to have access to the internet and have been not monitored. So now we have, um, porn, involved um mm -hmm. the fentanyl crisis is becoming a problem 
and uh, we have more children in care and we do not have homes. And the problem with, we didn't have enough homes to begin with, but with COVID, uh, people have closed their homes down because uh, because I live in a state with a high African African American community, they've opened up they open up their houses more, um, and they've been more affected by the COVID crisis than a lot mm-hmm. of them that shut down their homes. Yeah, so so we don't have we have kids that don't. Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. What were you saying? I was just to say we have we have kids come into care and we don't have homes. Hmm. Yeah, and that kind of with like the COVID issue, that kind of brings me to my next question. So as a mm-hmm. you know general libertarian, I generally want to see less government involvement in our lives, right? But possibly one place where I see a major issue mm-hmm. with no outside involvement is when children are getting mistreated. Um, so mm-hmm. I did want to ask, you know, how COVID laws, you know, laws trying to um, um, restrict getting outside, you know, how that's affected it. And also, you know, the whole thing with needing outside involvement to help children getting mistreated. Is that the sort of argument for having the government take away uh, children from families? And I realize that's kind of too broad. Well, you know, just, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, well, first, let me rephrase that question because the government doesn't take away the children. The kids... The problem, what happens is, is and I, I know that, you know, just let me explain, because I get it. I, I'm a conservative, I'm, I'm conservative libertarian. I don't like the government in our lives. I think that they, I mean, they can mismanage just about anything. And, and quite frankly, I think the reason why we're in this place is because of um, the handouts and, you know, uh, the lack of good education system. I live in a very poverty-stricken uh, area. Um, we incentivize illegitimacy. We incentivize um, having children out of wedlock, um, taking Christianity out of the schools. I mean, I see it firsthand. But we can sit there and pound our fist on the tables, as I think what you're trying to get at, and say, this is wrong, this is wrong. But the problem is we have children involved, and we have lots of children involved now. And so how do we put the genie back in the box? You know, I don't know. And to say that it's going to be, we have to do X, Y, and Z, you know, we, it's just not, it, it's such a complex issue. It is like the yeah. biggest onion and there are so many layers. So a child is not taken from, um, from the government, from the government or what happens is, as a child, like, here's another reason why COVID would happen with COVID. One of the, first line of defense is we have as children going into school. Your teachers are your first line of defense. They can tell if a child is suffering from neglect or child abuse. They're trained in this. They're mandated reporters of the court. And so we have those teachers, and I'm not saying teachers are our only way. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But teachers are a first line of defense. I think 30%, if not more, are, til- are teachers calling social services and saying, we have a problem here. You know, this kid's come to school uh, sleep deprived, uh, starving. Um, I'm seeing bruises. Their hair is matted to their head. And they, and I can tell you is when the kids started coming back to school. So during COVID, nobody had eyes on kids is what we call it. Hmm. You want to have a set of eyes on the children at all time. 
And so what happened was teachers, and we had nobody with a set of eyes on these children. And when they came back to school, the atrocities they were finding out were incredible. Mm. Um, so we really, and we knew it was going to happen. But, but until we can, you know, you can't just knock on people's doors and take children out of homes. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah. And while we, we wish we could, those laws protect us too in other ways as well. Do you know what I'm saying? There's two sides to that coin. I wouldn't want them to come to my house and take my child away based on my neighbor's opinion. Mm -hmm. But so, so there has to be substantial abuse or neglect or where there has to be, you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, yes, I do. Okay, good. Okay. So that was our first line of defense. Um, but if mom's driving down the road and she's just done a hit, of, she just did, a, a, you know, took her drugs or hit a heroin and she's on meth and drives off into the ditch. Well, the police are going to get involved. The kid's in the backseat, you know. So then they call Department of Child and Family Services. They take the children and they do immediate placement. And then they get 72 hours. They have to show up for court. And then the judge will look over and review the case and deem the child in need of care and protection. And at that point, they will find, and they usually try to find relative placement, but, you know, sometimes that's not available, mm-hmm. you know, they, they have to pass background checks too. And, um, and they have to find play, uh, find an appropriate placement for these children. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. So, um, okay. So it's, you, it's, I get what you're saying. It's definitely, it's not the government taking the children out. So Mm-mm. The court makes yeah. the decision that says this child has to be put in someone else's care. Is that correct? Exactly. All right. So uh, are the regulations about for foster care, are they set at a national, state, or local level, or is it kind of a combination? Mm-hmm. It is. Okay, so I saw that. that it's, a, it's a combination. So, um, for instance, little Johnny's, in, and he's, been in, um, he's in, been in care for 10 years, let's say, you know, um, and... He has, um, let's say he has mental defects and I'm trying to use one of my cases, but kind of skew it a little bit, Mm -hmm. but there's substantial issues there. Maybe there's, he was born drug addicted and he's a prodigy of this and he's never going through, he's going through the system and he's never been adopted, but there's been reasons he's, you know, once he, a, a child that comes into foster care, um, and they have a lot of trauma and, Unfortunately, our system will just quickly medicate these children. Mm. Um, See, there's a lot of layers to all of this. And so let's say he's on a lot of medicines and he has um, mental, he has issues of deletions of chromosomes that will allow him to be maybe a predisposition for certain mental, uh, mental diseases, let's say. And some of them might be violent. And as he grows, they could become even more exponentially violent. Okay. So mm-hmm. you see a pattern in the foster home of being dis- in foster homes of being displaced, displaced, displaced. Every time a child is displaced in a foster home, there's another level of trauma that happens to that child, which he already came into the care with all this trauma. And mm-hmm. he hasn't been placed in the right home because there hasn't been the right home. So this, there's a federal, so a new president comes into office and they federally mandate that every child is put into um, an adoptive placement. And you, it's like, you go hard on it. Well, I mean, that's real Jim and dandy, but you have a child that 
you can't just put in any foster at home. It has to be a particular type, right? So that would be a government uh, broader over uh, a mandate. That So that was just an example. So then you have the state mandate. In the state, you have a state secretary that's over Department of Child and Family Services, and um, they have their mandate and they have their funding and they have, they oversee, you know, counties or parishes. We're in Louisiana, so it's parishes, but counties. And they, they have um, what they're trying to achieve and to have um, permanency for a child. Because that's the goal is to have a permanency. Reunification mm -hmm. at all costs, but if we have to terminate, permanency for a child. So that would be your state level. And then you have your local level, which is the way I put it is your local level or your judges in your particular area. So in my area, um, they have deemed where I live will be the greatest concentration of population in the state of Louisiana. So that means this is where you're going to have more cases, right? Well, your local level are your judges. And if you have a judge that is a good judge and has a very low threshold to remove children, meaning um, this child is not safe in this home and she, she's proactive and you have a community that's proactive, um, then that would be how you would see it on a local level. Does that make sense? So you might have, let's say, um, the inner city of New Orleans, uh, their DCFS, um, and depending on their judge, and I don't know who it is, but maybe they have a lower, a higher threshold, like um, the baby almost has to be shaken to death before they're going to take the baby out. Oh, wow. Okay. I think, I think that makes sense. So I'm sorry, could you just, that was a lot of information. Could you just do a little summary of that kind of what each of them does? So on, so they're on a, on a um, national level for foster care. I mean, there's funding and there's an oversee, but it's basically, they set standards for what they want for all children basically is what I would say. Then you have, um, and when it comes to Department of Child and Family Services, when it comes to a, the government agencies, the state, you have a secretary that is over Department of Child and Family Services um, and who has her initiatives that what she wants to see happen to the children in her state mm -hmm. and what she wants to happen with her department heads and how to communicate with them and get best results plus they have all their contracted partners. And then you have your local level. I would say local would be in your counties, the judges that are over your family services. So they're the ones who are overseeing when children come in, depending on your judge and how active they are or what they deem is a crisis because they're all going to be different, mm -hmm. you know? So. Yeah. Okay, so you said the funding right now is at the national level, correct? Um, well, it's it. I'm sure it's national and state. It's state government. It's state funding as well. Yes. Okay. 
this kind of a combination that's from taxes, I assume. Absolutely. Yeah. So your taxes are paying, um, your taxes are paying for, uh, tomfoolery. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 this is a big topic mm-hmm. and there's just, like I said, a lot of layers to it, but do you so think, yes, taxes. Yeah. Do you think it would be more efficient to have more of this process at state or even local levels? Like, do you think at the national level, they're getting the job done well? No, Mm-mm. no. And the state isn't either. Yeah. Um, for instance, um, a couple of years ago, I was invited to the governor's mansion because the governor's wife is very involved with foster care mm-hmm. and the department, uh, Marquita Walters, I believe is her name, secretary, secretary over, I guess that's what she is over department of child and family services. She had an emergency meeting and she said, um, the only people that are addressing their problems and that are making any headway are uh, 501c3s and nonprofit, which are generally your Christian community. Mm-hmm. And she said, the state, we're, we're out, this is out of hand and the state cannot parent these children. Mm-hmm. And they can't. They can't. The problem mm-hmm. is they would have to open their doors and let everybody see how, how uh, they're using the funding and how inept it is. Mm-hmm. And at some point in time, somebody's going to have to do it. So. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because so lately I've been researching Calvin Coolidge a lot. Mm-hmm. And one of his big things was less, especially less national government involvement. And he mm-hmm. wanted to be more, at least more state, but if possible, like more local level. So he encouraged a community chess approach to welfare in general and thought that like the local people, like you mentioned teachers, mm-hmm. you know, they're like the first mm-hmm. line of defense that so they would know best how to solve local needs. Is there something to that idea that could be applied when it comes to foster care? Like would we benefit mm-hmm. from decentralization Mm-hmm. Well, for instance, okay, so I'm, I'm, I sit on the board of directors of an organization called Crossroads NOLA. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Crossroads NOLA is based out of New Orleans with New Orleans Baptist Church. There, they started, uh, the girl that's in charge of it, Anna Palmer, um, she adopted two children and two African-American children. Um, and she realized, um, and so the premise and that what Crossroads Nola started to do was it is, we are commissioned um, as Christians to do this. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a partnership with children and that she uh, goes to churches and Crossroads encourages churches or people in the church to adopt a child. And mm-hmm. if they do, they have support services and, you, when somebody decides to use Crossroads NOLA, they go through the certification process and they navigate the waters instead of using DCFS, they navigate the waters, um, how to go through DCFS, how to get certification, 
Plus, they ask them to nominate three people that they're friends with through their church that can help raise them and support them when they take these children on, because it takes a, it takes a group of people to do this. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's the idea. So she started off in New Orleans really small. She's in the whole state right now. Wow. We're, we're me. We're not me, but we're in the whole state now. Not only did she do Crossroads NOLA and she's. Um, and COVID has really thrown everybody a curveball, mm. a tremendous curveball in this sector of our society. Um, but not only do we go to the churches and uh, recruit, foster, and do this, we also offer respite services. So when the foster parents need a break, we'll offer like um, equine therapy, a night out, so the parents can drop them off, and we have certified people and background check people that will watch the children so they can go and just have a cup of coffee or go on a date night. Mm-hmm. Um, but now she's brought in something which is really super interesting. It's called TBRI mm-hmm. and it's trauma-based relational intervention. And it's through the Karen Purvis Institute out of Texas Christian University. And what we're finding is these children that are coming into foster care are severely traumatized mm-hmm. and Now the state has adopted TBRI due to Crossroads NOLA and anybody that gets certified through the state of Louisiana has to have TBRI training. All DCFS workers have to have TBRI training. We're starting to identify TBRI schools, TBRI therapists. So kids are getting trauma-based information and therapeutics to help combat what they've experienced being removed from the home. So, but now she's getting national recognition as well. Our organization is so. And this anyway. all, well, this is all a local starting, right? It started local, but now mm-hmm. she's throughout the whole state, the department of child and family services, um, Marquita wishes she had crossroads NOLA in every part of the state. And that's mm-hmm. our goal is to have, not crossroads. We're going to probably just do, going to rename it uh, cross. It's going to stay crossroads, but drop NOLA because we're a very regional state. So it might be on the North shore. It might be in Baton Rouge. It might be in Shreveport and it might be in Monroe where we're offering support services and um, respite care and things like respite, not care uh, in each part of the state and other states are now calling us as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So mm-hmm. have you seen anything like that coming from the state or national levels, like any developments like that? Yes. As a matter of fact, you're in Georgia and Chick-fil-A has an organization called Windshape and you should check out Windshape. Hmm. Windshape Wait. does, Windshape is their foster, uh, they have a foster care initiative as well. And okay. they use TBRI training as well, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So like my question was like, the developments like that um, training has any of that come directly out of a state or 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 national organization like government controlled wait what are you okay ask me again okay so the what you were just talking about was a local development correct that Mm -hmm. spread have any Mm -hmm. has any of those developments anything like that come out of the state or national government Nothing like that. No, Mm-mm. no, okay. no. It's a church. And see, cause you have to understand um, it's, it's a church. Mm-hmm. It's a church. 
And if we go and another quandary that we're having with it is if you're a church and you believe in potentially the LGBT, they ask for us to remove certain verbiage so they can partner with us. And they, we refuse to, we refuse to remove that verbiage. Hmm. You see, because um, they're sticking true to their roots and, and they should, and that's a whole nother topic, but that's how they started. And so that's, they're going to stay committed to how they started. I mean, there's still other nonprofits that can do things different ways, but the nonprofit community, and this happens to be a nonprofit Christian community is addressing the foster care and making some headways in it this way. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. All right. So it looks like um, we've gone for a little while. We're going to take a little short break and then we will Mm -hmm. come right back.